Welcome to Extraordinary People, the podcast that highlights people who inspire others, have made significant contributions to the world, or who have overcome adversity. This show is hosted by Shirley Bogtel, author, educator, wife, mother, and grandparent. Learn more and subscribe today at ShirleyWachtel.com. And now, here's my grandma, Shirley Wachtel. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of Extraordinary People. Today, I am delighted to have Ron Stallworth as my guest. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard about Ron, let me give you a very brief background. Ron is a 32-year highly decorated law enforcement veteran who worked undercover narcotics, vice, criminal intelligence, and organized crime beats in four states. As the first black detective in the history of the Colorado Springs Police Department, Ron overcame fierce racial hostility to achieve a long and distinguished career in law enforcement. Ron is the subject of the Academy Award-winning Black Klansman, directed by Spike Lee and derived from Ron's book by the same title. Ron is a noted speaker about his experiences and the importance of overcoming racism in today's society. And Ron, as I said, it's just a pleasure to have you here with me today. And um, I think we haven't uh, really uh, seen each other since uh, the Academy Awards in, in 2019. That's true. And let me make one correction. You failed to mention that your son wrote the screenplay. <laughs> yes, yes, he did. Yes, he did. And that was we, just. We <laughs> that's the most important part. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Um, and and we're, we're certainly very proud. And, and really, uh, you are the man behind the story. And if it weren't for for what you've done, it, this would all would have never come about. Um, I'm wondering for those very few people who are not familiar with the film or any or your book or anything about um, your background. Can you um, give us a little bit of how you began in law enforcement? Because I think it's such um, an inspirational tale and how uh, you ended up being um, the Black Klansman. Well, I started in law enforcement at the age of 19 uh, in Colorado Springs in 1972. It was a program called Police Cadet. It was for high school graduates between the ages of 17 and 19 years of age who aspired to uh, be police officers. And uh, they hired you. You went through the same testing program as uh, regular police officers. You asked the same physical qualifications, but you had to... Uh, wait until you turn 21 before they would outfit you with your uh, your leather gear, your gun holster and all of that stuff and put you in a uniform and get you out on the street. While as a cadet, you went through the police academy, uh, you learned all the mechanics of being a cop. And on your 21st birthday, you got sworn in and they converted the brown uniform you wore to a blue uniform and uh, you started your field training program. Um, from the very beginning, I wanted to work undercover, uh, in any capacity, but at that time, primarily narcotics. 
we had a heroin problem in Colorado Springs and none of the uh, white narcotic officers could get penetrate the black community because uh, a lot of the black dealers would only sell to blacks. So they were looking for a uh, black officer willing to work undercover. I happened to uh, fit the bill. I had no problems with going undercover into my own community and arresting people for putting that junk out on the streets. And uh, that's how I got started in undercover work. That occurred in 19, uh, uh, August of 1975. So that, in a nutshell, is uh, how I got started. Mm-hmm. In, terms of, in terms of how I got to be the Black Klansman, that occurred in 1978. Um, I was sitting in my office reading the newspaper and reading the classified ads in the newspaper. And I saw this ad that said uh, Ku Klux Klan for information. And then there was a uh, an address. So I wrote a little note to the address and basically pretended in the note to be a white supremacist, fellow white supremacist. Told them that I hated everything connected to... Uh, Blacks, Jews, uh, Japs. Um, in other words, I used all the language of hate that they use. And uh, told them I wanted to do something to purify the race and uh, sent, the, sent the note off in the mail with my phone number attached. And your own name. Yeah, yeah I stupidly <laughs> put my own name down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I knew better. I knew better and all I can say and will admit to is that I had a brain cramp that day. <laughs> so I sent this note off, forgot about it. And about a week later, I get a return phone call and it was from the uh, chapter president in Colorado Springs of the KKK. And he had a very interesting question for me. He said, why do you want to join the Ku Klux Klan? Now, that's something every black man in America has wanted to hear. So I told I told him uh, again, I repeated what I had put in the note, um, except I got a little more specific this time. I said I hated all these uh, ethnic groups. But my sister was dating and I'm going to use the word a nigger. And uh, I told him every time the thought of him putting his filthy black hands on my sister's pure white body it made me cringe. And I wanted to do something to stop that. He said, you're just the kind of guy we're looking for. When can we meet? Mm. And that launched my KKK investigation. And you did this. You began this without the knowledge of the higher ups, really. Uh, Yeah, we we worked. uh, We didn't uh, work like a big city police department where you have to go through several levels of command before you can do anything. We uh, were a small department. We only had three intelligence officers, and uh, we acted on the spur of the moment when uh, when appropriate. And I was acting on the spur of the moment. Uh, I ran into a roadblock, though. After I did this, uh, I made arrangements to meet this uh, uh, chapter president uh, face-to-face a week later. And I postponed it for a week because obviously I couldn't have a face-to-face meeting with him. Um, right. So that would have been a giveaway. That would have been a dead <laughs> giveaway. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, I postponed it for a week. And in that week's time, my sergeant and I went to 
the narcotic office, which was right next door, and we requested the use of an undercover officer, white undercover officer, to pose as me. The lieutenant in the narcotics office, I had worked for him several months earlier, and he and I had a personal dishate, uh, uh, hate, dislike uh, relationship. And he uh, he basically told me uh, he wasn't going to waste a good undercover officer for a bunch of nonsense with uh, white guys running around with white sheets on. Mm. That pissed me off. Sure. So so I then uh, my sergeant said, what do you want to do about this? I said, I want to take it directly to the chief of police. That's something you don't do in police departments is go directly to the chief's office. Mm-hmm. I didn't care at that point. I was fuming mad and uh, I wasn't going to let his bias and his uh, ignorance and dislike for me interfere with uh, a potentially good investigation. So my sergeant and I marched up to the chief's office and uh, we sat down. We told him what I had done, why I had done it and what the. uh chapter president had said the chief said what do you need i said i need this white officer to pose as me i need another officer for surveillance to follow uh, him around for protection and uh, uh that's all i need at this point the chief called the lieutenant up and he told him give stalworth everything he needs and hung up on him hmm. So from that point on, I had the use of the white officer whose name in my book is Chuck. In the movie, right. he's Adam Driver, Flip Flip uh, uh, Zimmerman. Right. And um, that's how we launched this investigation. I would tell Chuck everything that I said on the phone to these guys. And Chuck, in turn, would go in and channel me in face-to-face meetings with them. And uh, he would come back from the meetings and because I had him wired for sound, I could hear what was being said in the in, in the undercover phase of it. And uh, I would uh, channel what he said in my next phone call to them. And that's how we kept this investigation going. Mm-hmm. A lot of people ask, why didn't you just give the investigation to him? I didn't give it to Chuck because one, Chuck was a narcotics officer. He had his own caseload and I was fighting with the lieutenant in the first place. And two, it was my investigation. I launched it. I wasn't going to turn it over to anybody uh, to run. So that's how we pulled this off. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to know what was in your head um, and what were you feeling when you realized that this was going to be a go? I mean, speaking from the point of view of a civilian Obviously, you know, what you did was so courageous. Did you feel at all, honestly, any sense of fear or did did uh, Chuck feel any sense of fear about they would do what what was what you were doing? Because these these were violent guys that you were dealing with. No, we didn't feel any fear because we were both trained. In fact, I trained Chuck in uh, undercover work or the first few months of his assignment. Oh. Uh, our, our time in narcotics overlapped one another. So I was his training officer for a brief period of time. I knew Chuck to be a good undercover officer. I considered myself a good undercover officer. And as undercover cops, we don't get scared. We go into uh, that environment, whatever the environment may be, 
pretending to be someone that we're not, and we're prepared for any consequences that may come up. Um, so no, there was no fear. It was just a matter of doing another undercover investigation. And in this case, it involved uh, a group of white supremacists. Amazing. Um, did you, as you were um, going through this investigation, did, were you aware of how ironic the whole situation was and how, you know, you really kind of had one over on them the whole time? Let me answer that in this way. My sergeant would listen to my undercover conversations on the phone in the office. And there were times when he would literally fall out of his seat laughing so hard, red in the face, and uh, be on one knee. And it would get to him so bad that he'd have to run out of the office to catch his breath. And I could hear him in the outer office telling everyone, that crazy son of a bitch is in there telling David Duke and, and, and the Klan people that he's a white supremacist. Da, 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 da. And he would walk back in the office. He'd hear me say something else. And he'd turn red in the face, crack up laughing and run out of the office again. Oh, my God. It was like it was like a Saturday night live skit, except <laughs> it was happening in real life, real time. Right. But uh, he would. Uh, there were times he, he'd run out of the office when he'd come back in and there would be a, a, a crowd, a small crowd of uh, detectives listening to my conversation and they're cracking up laughing. So uh, sometimes I started laughing with him and I had to catch myself sure. in terms of what I was saying and uh, get back on point. So it was a lot of fun. I was very aware of the irony of it. Um, and I was also aware of the stupidity of these people because like you said, they're dangerous people, but they were very serious in their intent, in their hatred for whites and, and uh, Jews and so forth. And I never lost sight of the fact that there was potential for this thing to erupt. Um, we never lost that 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 uh, that sensation. Mm -hmm. So we kept on we kept on point and we uh, accomplished our objective. Uh, but uh, it was it was a very fascinating investigation. Oh, yes. Um, there is a couple of things, a couple of questions I have for you. Um, first of all, you were on the phone with them, with these people, and and then somebody else posed as you. Now, you don't have the same voices, though. So how were they not? Uh, how did they not get that? That was one of the things that the. Uh made us laugh is if you heard Chuck's voice, his voice is distinctly different than mine. There'd be no doubt that you were talking to a different person. Mm -hmm. These guys were white supremacists. They hated uh, Jews and blacks and other minorities with a passion. They wanted to burn crosses everywhere. They wanted to kill. Uh, one, one of the people even talked about lynching, hanging as many black people as he could. Right. Uh, they were very serious in their intent, but they were some of the stupidest, dumbest people you ever imagined because they should have known from the very beginning, hey, we're talking to two different people. Right. And they didn't. They didn't pick up on it. And uh, that's one of the hilarity, hilarious things that, uh, about this investigation. They never caught on to the fact of something as simple as a different voice. Right. You know, I've always felt that the 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 roots of racism really come from ignorance. 
And that's just another way of proving that point. No. Well, I used to tell people that uh, when Martin Luther King said, we shall overcome the anthem of the civil rights movement, he wasn't joking because as long as we're dealing with this type of individual, we shall and we have and we will overcome these fools. They're idiots. Yeah. Yeah. But they are about they are about white supremacists and racists. Yeah. 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 And dangerous and dangerous. Yes. So yes. we've seen that certainly play out time and time again. Um, I wanted to ask, um, there was um, a scene in the film where uh, David Duke is um, telling you how he would recognize if he were speaking to a black man. Uh, can you recount that for us a bit? Because that was that was really interesting. And that, that was one of the incidents where my sergeant literally fell on the floor and ran out of the office. <laughs> right. Um, I was on the phone with David. Um, I started talking to David uh, about a month or so after the investigation started. and. Uh, I basically was very surprised that he picked the phone up one day when I called him and he answered it directly. He didn't give me my, or I didn't get my membership card, which was the reason for my call. And uh, I called to find out where my membership card was because I had been told by the chapter president that I could not participate in clan activities such as cross burnings until I was a full-fledged member. So I wanted my, my membership card. So uh, I called David Duke up, and lo and behold, he answered the phone. I explained who I was, uh, identified myself as Ron Stallworth, a new chapter, uh, Colorado Springs chapter Klansman, and that uh, I didn't have my card. I had sent it in. I should have gotten it within uh, a couple of weeks. Could he check on it? He said, yes, I can. And I heard him wrestling through some papers. And then he got back on the phone, and he said, here's your uh, application right here. He said, we've had a, a, a problem in our office um, machinery. He said, let me process this myself and I will get your card out to you before the end of the day. So I sang profuse praises to him and uh, uh, thanked him. And um, I asked him on the phone, aren't you ever afraid of some nigger calling you up pretending to be white to learn secrets about the clan he said no i never worry about that because i can always tell when i'm talking to one of them i said really how he said take you for example i can tell that you're a pure white aryan american because of the way you talk i said i still don't understand he said you talk like an educated man he said, white Americans talk like educated uh, men and they speak the English language the way it was meant to be spoken. But he said, niggers don't talk that way. I said, I still don't understand. He said, take the word R. He said, a white educated man like you and I, we pronounce it the way it was meant to be pronounced. We say R, R. But a nigger would say R, uh. Ara. So he said, whenever you hear someone on the phone saying Ara, you're talking to a nigger. And he said, that's how I know. I said, Mr. Duke, thank you so much. I appreciate that. If you hadn't told me that, I wouldn't have known it. He said, I said, from now on, whenever I talk on the phone and I'm not sure of who I'm talking to, I'm going to get them to say the word R. 
he hung up. And from that moment on, whenever I called him up, I would find some way to incorporate R into the conversation, except oh, I would man. say R-R-R. <laughs> right. He never once picked up that he was talking to one of them. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I just, I recall, you know, I'm just visualizing that uh, last scene with uh, John David Washington, who at that point when he, you know, he, he actually confesses who he is, but he starts speaking in that way. And then, you know, he hangs up and it's that beautiful moment of victory. I, I don't think that actually happened, um, but it really, it, it, you know, the whole audience was like, man, this is this is unbelievable. A version of that did actually happen. It didn't happen at that point in time. Okay. But David David came to Colorado Springs on his publicity tour, and uh, well, we're getting ahead. But I was assigned to be his bodyguard. Yes, that was. I was going to ask you about that. Well, I was assigned to be his bodyguard, and uh, I accompanied him on his uh, travels in Colorado Springs. He was in town for probably six hours or so, and I was assigned to him uh, because he was getting death threats. So I shadowed him wherever he went, and uh, we got we got the photo taken that was depicted in the movie. That actually happened, and uh, I got him on the interstate out of town, got him safely out of town. And the next day, not at the end like the movie depicted, but the next day, I called him up in Louisiana, and I asked him. I said, "Mr. Duke." Uh, how did you like your trip to Colorado Springs? Did you have an enjoyable time? He said, yes, I did. I said, well, I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to sit down and talk to you in more detail. I said, but I was honored to meet you. Uh, he liked praise. He was kind of like Donald Trump. He liked to be praised. Uh, it must be something about white supremacists that uh, part of their DNA. So <laughs> I'm uh, singing his praises. And then I asked him, I said, tell me something. Did anything interesting happen while you were in Colorado Springs? I said, uh, did you see anything interesting or meet anybody interesting or whatnot? He said, well, I met this nigger who threatened to throw me in jail, referring to me. I said, really, what happened? He said, uh, this nigger um, threatened to throw me in jail uh, if I uh, touched him and everything. And I said, that son of a bitch. Why would he do something like that to a man like you? Mm-hmm. And again, my sergeant is cracking up laughing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just kept egging him on this way. And uh, finally, I said, well, I have to go. Uh, but I want you to know I was very honored to meet you and hung up on him. He never fe- realized that he was talking to that son of a bitch on the phone. And uh that's what actually happened. I re- I re- I revealed myself, but I didn't reveal myself. Right, right. That's incredible. Just, <laughs> just. And and can you give me? I realize that we we ha- we don't have a timeline here. Can you tell us um, when this was during the seventies, wasn't it? Nineteen seventy eight to seventy nine. It okay. was about, it was a nine month nine month and six month investigation. It must have been very difficult for you to um, keep all the facts of this case hidden for 
such a long period of time. What was the reasoning behind that when they told you not to, you know, publicize all that you've done? And um, at what point were you able to publicize um, what had happened? I could have done it at any time. Uh, I was ordered to end the investigation uh, when David Duke, when David Duke, uh, or not David Duke, when when the chapter president, uh, who was a soldier at Fort Carson, Colorado, when he was uh, about to muster out of the army, he said he wanted to have a more stable leadership in the clan, the, the chapter, and he proposed to the membership that Ron Stallworth, Chuck, become the new chapter president. To replace him because Ron Stallworth was a local Colorado Springs person, not a GI that would be coming and going. So mm. when he when he told me that on the phone, I went to uh, my sergeant and told him. The sergeant said, "Let's go to the chief." We went to the chief, we told the chief this latest development, and the chief said, "Close the investigation down immediately." Mm-hmm. I said, "Why?" I said, why? The chief said, I don't want anyone to know this investigation is taking place. He said, it's, it's gone too far. I said, chief, stop and think about it. This guy is proposing me, i.e. Chuck, to be the chapter president. From that position, we can learn so much about the white supremacy movement in the state of Colorado, not just Colorado Springs, but the entire state. Because I, uh, I would then have access to the state leadership. I was having conversations periodically with the state Grand Dragon, who was a Lakewood, Colorado fireman. Lakewood is a suburb of Denver. I was having conversations with him on the phone as well, but this would afford me opportunities to set up meetings where Chuck could then go representing me and uh, we could learn what was being planned at a state level. And I told Chief, we can do this very easily by close consultation with the district attorney's office so that we don't cross the line into illegality. The chief said, no, I want this investigation shut down. It's gone on long enough. He said, basically, I want Ron Stallworth Klansman to disappear. Well, I argued as vigorously as I could with the chief. And my sergeant, in fact, had his hand on my knee under the table and kept squeezing me, telling me to shut up because you're going too far. And finally, I took his uh, message and uh, we got up, we walked out of the chief's office. And the minute we got out of his office and out of his hearing range, we both said, son of a bitch. Mm -hmm. So we went to we went to my office and uh, the chief also ordered me to destroy the case file. We had two notebooks filled with reports on what we had done. And he ordered that material to be destroyed. I argued against that. I said, we've done nothing wrong. Everything we did has been legal above board and in compliance with the law. He said, I know, but I don't want any record to exist that we had undercover cops into the KKK. So that was part of my anger when I walked out of the office. So when I got to the office, I opened the notebook. My sergeant was there. I took a report here and a report there and shredded it. My sergeant walked out of the office for a period of time. And at that time, I grabbed both notebooks, ran to my car, and stuck both notebooks in my car. 
Uh-huh. Basically, basically, I stole official police reports, which is against the law. Right. And had I been had I been found, I would have lost my job, a potentially lost job, and been severe, severely disciplined. I knew what I was doing. I knew it was wrong. I knew it was uh, morally wrong. I knew it was uh, illegal. And at that point, I didn't care. But I wasn't going to let this work that we had done, honest, decent, good work. I wasn't going to let it be destroyed because the chief was timid. So I took the notebooks home and I kept them over the years. And uh, fortunately, no one ever asked me, did you destroy the files? I never had to answer that question. And I'm grateful for that because I never had to lie. I never had to lie. Um, But I took those reports home and kept them. And I always told myself one day I was going to write this story down, but, you know, I never got around to it. Over the years, I traveled from Colorado Springs to the, the Arizona in my law enforcement career to Cheyenne, Wyoming, and then to Utah, where I ultimately retired. And over the years in my travels, I told people about this investigation. I had the membership card in my wallet all the time. And I had a certificate of membership that was framed. And wherever I went, I hung the certificate of membership on my wall in my office. So I made no secret about the fact that I had done this investigation. And uh, some people I told in depth what I had done. Mm -hmm. But I never talked to any media. And uh, in 19, I mean, in 2013, I came home. I was teaching at Salt Lake Community College, criminal justice. I came home that day and pulled out a writing pad and I started writing. Why that day? Can't answer that. I just started writing that day. I started writing and uh, approximately nine months later, I put the pad down. And uh, I felt I had told the story. I put it down and a friend of mine who was a uh, retired Santa Ana, uh, California police sergeant, had a publishing company, a small publishing company. And I had told him my story and he had told me that if you write it down, I will publish it. I said, okay. So I wrote, I called him up, told him that I wrote the story down and did he still want to publish it? He said, absolutely send it to me. So I sent it to me. He got back to me two weeks later. He said, we're going to publish this. I said, great. So that's how it initially got published. It was only through mail order, paperback mail order. Um, uh, Very, in retrospect, it was kind of amateurish compared to how it looks now uh, with a big uh, major publishing firm behind it. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was out there in the uh, the ether, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And that's how Charlie got a hold of it. Charlie got a copy of that uh, paperback and read it. And contacted me. Yep, yep. And so that—that's the background behind how this whole thing uh, got started. Were you were you pleased, honestly, um, with um, the way the film portrayed the events? And I understand that you know every film makes changes for the sake of good drama. Um, I I know one of those changes was. Um, the idea of it really introducing the uh, anti-Semitism angle um, with making uh, uh, Flip 
the um, uh, Jewish, and there was there were very riveting scenes regarding that aspect of the film. Um, is there anything that you would want the public to know that wasn't in the film, perhaps that maybe they should be aware of? Well, the idea of changing Flip to uh, making him Jewish. When Charlie and David, uh, David Rabinowitz, his writing partner, who you know very well. Yes. Uh, when when they proposed that to me, I thought it was a stroke of genius, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Uh, Charlie explained to me that he was Jewish. He and David were Jewish and that he, uh, the two of them thought that, that would be a good angle. Because I asked them when they said they wanted to write my story, a screenplay. I said, what's your angle to my story? Give me how you see it coming out. They said, well, we'd like to make this character Jewish. I said, why? They said, well, we're Jewish. And we believe that that would add a little tension in the uh, phone calls and the uh, face-to-face meetings and so forth. I thought about it for a second. I said, I like that. Go with it. And um, I told them to run with it. Uh, told them they couldn't do anything with the story until I had seen it and given my final approval. Because I didn't want it to be... Uh, Hollywoodized, if you will. Uh, one of the things that was done that I didn't like, uh, but I understand why they did it, was the scene where Flip goes to the house and has uh, the meeting, meets all the Klansmen for the first time, and John David was out uh, snooping, trying to pry into the conversation via the uh, wire communications. And uh, you see John David uh, take off running and they come out of the house yelling at him. And one, uh, one of the guys, uh, uh, Felix, has a gun and mm-hmm. he points the gun at John David running and Flip, Adam Driver, takes the gun from him and starts shooting at John David. Mm-hmm. And he's deliberately he's deliberately missing yes. him. Mm-hmm. That never happened. <laughs> right. And that was a little Hollywoodization of the uh, story because no way in real life would I, as an undercover cop, had uh, would have taken a gun and start shooting at a fellow undercover cop, even if I was deliberately trying to miss him. Because anytime a police officer is involved in a shooting, you have to have a lot of investigation going as to what transpired. You have to account for the bullets that you fired. Uh, So that would have meant sending a detail out to uh, knock on doors and find out if uh, their house had been hit by a gun, uh, by a a bullet. That would have meant uh, finding out if anyone had been hit. It could have accidentally hit somebody um, uh, without intention. Uh, That never would have happened in real life. But I understand why they did it. Uh, That part of the movie I didn't really like, but it, it added a lot of drama to the scene. And uh, it worked out okay. I told I told the producers when I met with them, I said, I realize you guys are going to take liberties with my story. All I ask is that you don't go crazy with it. Like I've seen a lot of Hollywood movies about cops where they have cops shooting up in the air, giving warning shots. That doesn't happen. And if it does, the officer's butt is in a and is in a ringer. Mm -hmm. Uh, I said I've seen scenes in, in movies where a police officer is going on a hot call and he's got his red lights and sirens going, except 
There's no traffic on the road. It's just that car by itself. And he's got red lights and sirens. Why does he have red lights and sirens when he doesn't need them? I said, that's stupid. But you see it all the time in Hollywood because for dramatic effect, it looks good. So I said, don't do stupid stuff with my story. That's all I ask. For the most part, they didn't do stupid <laughs> stuff. No, no. And um, so I have uh, one last uh, point. Um that I want to discuss with you. Um, the, the film was sandwiched between two um, very poignant scenes. Um, one was a scene from Gone with the Wind, which takes place certainly many, many years ago, the end, you know, during the Civil War. And then we're, we're up to something that happened much more recently, you know, the events in uh, Charlotte and um, the death of um, one individual. Um, and, and it's, you know, um, I think I thought those were brilliant. And I know Spike Lee added those two scenes, um, which, which takes us into the relevance of, of your activities to present day. And it's been, it's been a difficult last four years under this administration. And um, we've seen more and more um, of these scenes playing out where innocent black individuals are, are murdered and the rise of anti-Semitism. And I wanted to know, I know you're still very active and I wanted to know your thoughts on that. You, you said something earlier um, that that really struck me. It was an optimistic note. You quoted um, Dr. Martin Luther King. And I was kind of glad to hear that you think that we can change things in spite of all that's happened. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that was a stroke of genius on Spike's part. Uh, Donald Trump was the biggest disaster in American history and shame on the people who thought that he could make a difference. Shame on those uh, Obama supporters who switched allegiance for that election in 2016 and propelled that man over the top. And shame on the Democrats for thinking Hillary Clinton was an answer to uh, Obama's succession who wanted to were so intent on making history by having the first woman presidential candidate to head a major party. Shame on them for thinking Hillary with all of her baggage in the right wing universe was that woman, because that's what started that whole process of Donald Trump uh, occupying the white house and just, uh, bastardizing everything connected to the presidency and, uh, the, the rise with uh, racism, anti-Semitism, uh, anti-Black, uh, it all began with their, the, the Democrat Party decision, Democratic Party's decision to put Hillary in the White House. Uh, major mistake. And for the record, I've said that to the Democratic Party here in El Paso, Texas, uh, at a speech I was asked to keynote. Uh, I told them that shame on them. Um, Trump had a history of racist uh, remarks. Trump was never the brilliant uh, 
rich person that he always purported himself to be, uh, he had an image and he played on that image very well. The one thing I will say about Trump is that he pulled off arguably the biggest con in American history in convincing people to give him the White House. And that, I can't take away that from the man. He was brilliant in how he did it. And uh, he made fools of uh, the American public, those that people that voted for him. For the record, I did not, in case you haven't uh, realized that. Um, but I will give him credit where credit is due. He pulled off the biggest con in history. Um, the, the reality was when Charlottesville happened and he made his famous, there were good people on both sides of the comment following the death of Heather Heyer. How people could not see the futility, the stupidity of that statement, because A, there is no such thing as a good Nazi. Nazis, by their very nature, are bad. We have history that shows that. So how could there have been a good Nazi a or that they were very fine people? There is no very fine Nazi. Never has been. So the very fact that he made that statement and people gave him a pass on that, he wasn't condemned for it like he wasn't condemned for the uh, uh, the access uh, video about women's uh, privates and so forth. The public kept giving him passes and shame on the Demo on the uh, Republican Party for allowing this to go on. They were so power hungry and hell bent on keeping him in power uh, and keeping the Democrat from the presidency that they uh, they endorsed him. They enabled him at every step of the way. And yet, if I could interrupt, and yet you are, op are optimistic about the future. I'm so optimistic about the future because mm -hmm. I believe that collectively we are not as stupid as uh, that small group that uh, supported him and, and to this day still support him. Um, I believe that it's all going to catch up, not him, not only him, but the Republican Party in general. And uh, we'll get righted. We'll get back on track in terms of uh, the natural spinning of this universe of ours. What are you doing um, nowadays? I like, you know, we want to know where we can, um, you know, find out more about you. Um, what are you, where are you going? I think you're still, you st from what I hear, I know you've been on TV quite a bit, but, um, you know, you're still very active in putting your voice out there. Even as we speak, I'm looking at a 260-something page manuscript of my next book, Ah. tentatively titled From Black Klansmen to Hip-Hop Cop, okay. confronting the politics of gangs, race, religion, bias, and prejudice within the blue wall. Okay. Uh, I have a chapter in there dealing with uh, Donald Trump. Um, I will be talking about Donald Trump in this chapter and about uh, what he did to uh, during his presidency in, in terms of race. I talk about black Klansmen and uh, the attack on black Klansmen from uh, Booth Riley uh, during the uh, buildup for the Academy Awards, 
Boots Riley, who was the director, writer, director, producer of the movie Sorry to Bother You. Right. Uh, Boots Riley tried to sabotage us in uh, the campaign buildup for the Academy Awards. Um, he basically said I was a fraud. He said uh, that no way could a black man, a black cop, be a protagonist in the fight for civil rights. And he accused me of being a snitch for J. Edgar Hoover. Hmm. Uh, I was in high school when J. Edgar Hoover uh, had his counterintelligence program against the Black Panther Party and Malcolm X, Martin Luther King. I was in high school, and the last time I checked history books, El Paso, Texas, where I live, where I grew up and where I currently live, El Paso, Texas was not a thriving, vibrant center of uh, Black resistance in this country. Can you tell us, can you give us any timeline for when we might see your book out or when we might again hear you speak? My book should be out sometime in the spring. That's the closest I can give you. Okay. Okay. But That's it, great. It'll, be, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. That's wonderful. You know, Ron, I, I couldn't listen to you all day because, you know, I've always, you know, for a long time wanted to have a conversation with you about um, your your inspiring story and how you continue to inspire people. And I hope that we will continue to hear your voice out there because I think you're you're needed now more than ever in a sense. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I hope that your son writes another Academy Award winning film. Hey, that, that won't be bad. Thank you so <laughs> much, Ron. My pleasure. Take care, Shirley. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Extraordinary People. To learn more about Shirley Wachtel and to subscribe to the show, head to ShirleyWachtel.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Extraordinary People. Extraordinary People.